0: mark 6 45 to 52 immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed while he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray and when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning um, it's great to see everyone. Uh, we are in week three of being back here, um, being able to worship together uh, and uh, as we've been uh, gathering together it's it's kind of like we have a bit of a of a uh, preview services as we're heading to the fall where we 're figuring out how to be back um, with each other we we're, we're going to be Diving into our Mark reading. Um, so, if you have uh, your bulletin, you can open that up. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Uh, it's Mark chapter six, verses forty-five to fifty-two, is what we're going to focus on. Let me pray um, before we dive in. Our Father, uh, we we come before you. We uh, we need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts. We ask that you would speak to us as we look into your word. I ask that you would guide my words. Uh, we ask that we would meet your son, Jesus. Um, he is our hope. He is our strength. And so uh, we turn to you as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this last, uh, last week, I read an interesting article uh, in The Atlantic uh, by uh, Ikemeni Uan. Uh, She's a theologian, she's a co-host of a podcast called Truth's Table. The title of her article was, We Could Have Changed the World. The piece was a reflection on how all of the unrest and upheaval the pandemic has caused was an opportunity for us to reimagine a better world, a better society, But instead, it seems that we've chosen to try and rush right back to whatever normal was before the pandemic began. In short, her article made the case that we as a culture missed the opportunity to address some of the injustices and the brokenness of our world and to take steps to really love our neighbors. It's a thought-provoking article. In a rush to reestablish routines, to reconnect with family and friends, to reopen economies, a lot of us have felt let, a lot of us have let fall by the wayside the issues that we had our eyes open to when the world went on pause and we were interacting through screens and books and 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 those sorts of, of means. So so while some people have managed to ease back into a life that maybe is close to how things were pre-COVID. There are for many others um, who, for them, not much has changed. The struggle is still real. We've had fireworks displays here in the city proclaiming that the city is open for business. But, but if we zoom back uh, from this broad look at how our culture or our nation, or even our, our world is pushing hard to get back to normal, we see that individually, many of us are still struggling. We're struggling with the things that we were exposed to throughout COVID, things that we've had our eyes open to, things like mental health or racial injustice, unemployment or isolation, debt, displacement. The list can go on. And in this push to return to normal, a lot of those things have been neglected though I'm not convinced fully that we've completely missed all the chances to change. We are still in the middle of a pandemic and depending on where you are, um, like if you're in, in healthcare or if you're in a place where the Delta variant is, is spreading really fast, um, maybe if you're unemployed, you realize there's still a lot of unknowns and risks and instability in the world. So, we have a choice. We can keep pushing back to reclaim any sense of what normal was, which is really hard work. Or we can do the even harder work of reevaluating things and envisioning something better, even as we seek to restore some sort of normal. If you were with us two weeks ago, um, I brought up how we, Emmanuel, as a church, are relearning how to be a gathered community. We've we've been apart for so long. When I brought up up this one sort of rubric of how to evaluate how a community is growing, um, that there's phases that a community goes through as it grows into a healthy and vibrant place. The first was pseudo-community, where there's this appearance of true community, but it shatters apart really quickly once adversity emerges. And that throws the community into uh, the second phase, which is called chaos, It's where everything seems to be falling apart and friendships are lost and people leave and disillusionment is set in. the third phase is called emptying, where, where people really commit to really facing the hard issues together, laying aside or emptying some of their presuppositions, and they're really starting to gather and listen to each other and wrestle through things together. And out of this wrestling emerges the fourth phase, which is true community, where where we learn to coexist with each other, um, with with people who are maybe a bit different and they have different opinions than us. and, and, And yet we remain united around the core things that matter and that define us. What I suggested was that COVID threw everybody into chaos. Whether you are in this pseudo community or whether you are in true community, everything just exploded. And we're now in that place of opportunity, of emptying out the false presuppositions we held, reaffirming the true presuppositions that knit us together around Jesus. So so with that in mind, we're, we're, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. And the question I want us all to wrestle with as we look into this text, is do you really, really believe that Jesus is God, right? Right down to the depths of your being, because how we answer this question is going to form how resilient and honest and open we are with each other and how we engage with the world around us in these unsettled times. We have an opportunity to empty out false presuppositions that we hold about Jesus. So two weeks ago, we looked at Mark 6, 7 to 13. We saw that even from the very beginning of Jesus's mission, Christians, followers of Jesus, were thrust into reaching out to the world with the love and message of Jesus, even when it was dangerous and chaotic. In the middle of Jesus being rejected by his hometown on one side and John the Baptist being beheaded, the disciples are given authority and sent out to tell the good news that Jesus is here to heal people and to set them free. They point people to Jesus. And we share that same calling even to this day. Now, in our passage, we, we encounter Jesus and the disciples, they're they're in a bit of a different situation. John the Baptist is dead. The disciples have returned to Jesus after being sent out. And after the intensity of all that has happened, Jesus and his disciples try to go away to get some rest. That's just before our reading in Mark. But people, they recognize Jesus and the disciples and they actually go ahead of them and they're waiting for them when when they get to where they're going. We're told that they end up in a desolate place where where this sets the stage for one of Jesus' most famous mighty works. It's known as the feeding of the 5,000. So with five loaves of bread and two loaves of fish, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. And then it's probably more than double than that if we include women and children that are present. So Jesus does, performs this mighty work. He feeds uh, all these people um, with very limited resources. And by the time all that is done, it's late in the day. And Jesus sends the disciples out on a boat to the Sea of Galilee, sends them on ahead of him to get to the other side. Jesus stays behind to dismiss the crowd. And once Jesus dismisses the crowd, he goes up on a mountain to pray. And now here is where we pick things up. And here's where things get a bit wild again. The disciples run into a really strong headwind. We're told in verse 48 that they're making headway painfully. Now, remember among the disciples are there's a number of career fishermen. Um, They they know how to handle a boat. They know what they're doing on the sea. And and so this seems to be a pretty serious wind that they're fighting against. They're struggling to get to the other side of the lake. And now sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., that's what the fourth watch of the night, uh, night means. The, and, and they're probably pretty exhausted because they've been at it for hours. Sometime just before dawn, they get the fright of their lives. There's somebody walking on the sea. They're not swimming, right? They're not in another boat. Somebody is out there walking on the water. And it's not just that they're walking on the water, but, but they're walking into the wind that they've been striving against all night. It says in verse 48 that this person meant to pass them by, right? He's actually overtaking the disciples who are struggling in this boat, trying to get to the other side. And so the disciples, they jump to the, the only conclusion that they can, um, given the circumstances. They're, they're like, it must be a ghost, right? Like people can't walk on water. Um, so so they cry out in fear because they're terrified. Then uh, the ghost speaks and the voice is a familiar one. It's actually not a ghost. It's Jesus. It is I. Don't be afraid, he says. Is this comforting? Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, Jesus then jumps into the boat and immediately the wind dies down and all is still. The disciples are utterly astounded. What on earth has just happened to us? Let me zero in on the disciples for a few minutes. Does it strike you as odd the way they react to what Jesus does? I don't mean the fear that they experience when they see someone they don't recognize at 3 a.m. walking on the water in the middle of a really bad windstorm. I think that would throw anyone off. What I mean is that the reason we are given for the disciples astonishment is not that Jesus walked on water and still the storm, but because they didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Right. It's not the display of power over nature that causes them astonishment. They still can't figure out what Jesus did when he fed over 5000 people. But what we'll find out as as we look further is that both of these mighty acts of God are related. What we need is a little bit more context. This is not the first time that Jesus does something to the wind and the waves in the presence of the disciples. We go back all the way to Mark chapter 4. We find that they're on the water there. In Mark 4.35, it's actually the, the first of three events that take place on the water in the first half of Mark's gospel. So here in Mark 4, we're told that Jesus and the disciples are on a boat when a storm rises up. And Jesus is asleep down below the deck, and this storm is bad enough that the boat is filling up, and they're in danger of sinking. The disciples wake up Jesus, who says to the sea, Peace, be still. And the storm dissipates, and all is calm. Everyone is afraid, right? And the disciples explain, exclaim, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Right? They're, they're, at that point, they're, 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 they're kind of freaked out about what Jesus just did. The disciples knew that Jesus was someone special, knew that Jesus was someone chosen by God, even the promised Messiah that would bring freedom to his people who have been in exile for hundreds of years. But it hasn't yet dropped in their minds that Jesus is God. So when Jesus does God-like things, telling the wind and the waves what to do, they're terrified and they're confused. And this confusion remains with them, even as they witness and participate in healings and exorcisms. But in our passage in Mark 6, by the time we get there, the disciples... They're moving a bit further along in their comprehension of what's going on. Not much, but a little. Jesus calming the wind and the water. They've they've seen that before. They still may not understand it, but they've seen it. They're cool with it, right? Jesus, he's our guy who's got power over nature and all the chaotic forces of evil. But they still can't figure out what happened to the bread. Like, like well, what was going on there? That's new. And so our passage even says that their hearts were hardened as they're they're wrestling through this. All right, so so there's another layer to this passage. Actually, there's a couple of layers. And so 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 we'll start with the base layer. We'll we'll dig down a little bit deeper. We need to remember that whenever we're reading the New Testament, it's building on the foundation of the Old Testament. And as you may have heard many times here at Emmanuel the basic foundational story that kind of forms the operating system that the rest of the Bible runs on is the story of the Exodus. And in particular, in Mark's gospel, it's the story of the Exodus and the book of Isaiah that are crucial to understanding what Mark's trying to tell us about Jesus. For the sake of time, we're we're only really going to focus on the Exodus allusions that are that are in Mark, um, as as he tells us about Jesus' life. We might get into a little bit of Isaiah, but we're mostly going to focus on Exodus. So, if if we go back to the story of the feeding of the five thousand, there's a key word that Mark uses there. It's, it's it's the word desolate. They were in a desolate place. Now can you think about a time in the Exodus story where God's people were in a desolate place or how about a desolate place where God fed his people? This is actually an allusion to when the Israelites were wandering in the desert after leaving Egypt and God fed them with manna. What we're seeing here is Jesus is doing stuff that only God does. And this is throwing the disciples for a loop. But there's more. When Jesus is walking on water, it's an act in itself, a demonstration of divine power over the chaotic forces represented by the sea. When Jesus is walking on water, we're told in verse 38 that Jesus was about to pass the disciples by. He was about to just blow by the boat. It's kind of a weird thing to happen. Why would Jesus apparently try to attempt to pass them by, especially when they're struggling? Now, again, this is an allusion to the Exodus narrative. And again, it is Mark highlighting for us Jesus's divinity. The phrase to pass by, it's actually one word in the Greek, and and it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament twice. Both times it is used in reference to God passing by one of his people and revealing his glorious presence to them. So we actually find it in Exodus chapter 33. This is when Moses asks God to show him his glory. Right? Mo- Moses is like, God, I want to see your glory. And God responds uh, to Moses by basically saying, Moses, um, you-, you can't look at me face to face. You can't do that and live. It's too much for you but I'm going to pass by and you can get a glimpse of like the top of my back. I think that's about all you can handle, right? I'm going to pass by. And so God passes by and Moses just, just gets a glimpse of God's glory, of God, God's, God's weighty presence. So we find when Jesus is about to pass the disciples by, he's not actually ignoring them. He's not racing to the other side to beat them there and surprise them. As Jesus passes by, it's as if he wants to give the disciples reassurance of his divine presence with them. He wants them to see that he's God. All right, so one more Exodus reference, and then then we'll kind of tie it all together. The reason the disciples were having such a hard time processing what is going on with Jesus, we're told it was that their hearts were hardened. This might seem like a surprising thing to read, right? We expect Jesus's opponents to have hard hearts. You know, that, that is that they're, they're, they're disobedient, they're dull, um, or they're obstinate in the resistance. But the disciples? And when we think back about the Exodus, right? The one prominent figure who had a hard heart that jumps out at us in the book of Exodus was Pharaoh, Right? Pharaoh's the one who kept God's people in bondage and would not release them. He was the number one enemy there. He was the one who had a hardened heart, a hard heart. And now it seems like the disciples have more in common with Jesus's opponents than with Jesus right now. And all this time, all the while, they've actually been actively participating in Jesus's mission. Like they've signed on, they're they're, they're all in. They've left homes, they're following them around do you ever feel like the disciples? Maybe it's hardness of heart, right? Actively not really wanting what Jesus wants or not believing who Jesus is. Or maybe it's just like utter confusion about who Jesus is, right? I thought I signed up for this and now there's this. And it's just like, whose kid is this, right? Like, who is this? I don't know what's going on now that i've chosen to follow jesus maybe it's 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 wanting to embrace one aspect of who jesus is but not the whole package right it's like i think jesus is a great moral teacher or i think jesus is a wise sage or or he's a noble leader or or he's a radical revolutionary and and like i think jesus embraces all of those things but he's more he's more than that Maybe, maybe you've started to follow Jesus because just one of those things about him has gripped you. Or, or maybe you're, you're just in a place where, where you're thinking about following him and, and, and he's intriguing. But what Jesus calls all of us to do is simply to follow him. We don't have to have everything completely figured out right away when we choose to follow him. But the call's there to follow Jesus. These disciples we were reading about left everything to follow him. They've been in the thick of things. They've seen people healed and delivered. They've experienced Jesus's power and still they are confused. And you know what? That's okay, right? It's okay that they're confused. And, and, and the reason that it's okay is because they're not going to remain confused. Do you want to know why they're not going to remain confused? It's just that Jesus is not going to let them stay there, right? And if you're, you're in that place now, Jesus isn't going to let you stay there either. We're called to follow Jesus. And you know what? We all mess it up, right? We fail at it. We're really good at failing it. How? Well, sometimes we just assume that we know what Jesus's mission is and we plow ahead and we end up hurting other people. Sometimes we just rest on our own presuppositions about who Jesus is and what he demands of us, right? Surely Jesus won't put me in a position where I need to risk my reputation or my career or my friendships. Sometimes we settle for just being nice and comfortable and not speaking up in the face of injustice. Or we shrink away from confronting all the dark stuff that's in our past, or even in in like our country's past. Sometimes we don't really deeply believe that Jesus is God. Sure, we might have just recited the creed altogether, and, and we might pay lip service to the idea, but when we get out into the instability of the world, our idols get exposed, and our conception of Jesus is revealed. Right, our idols are the things that we rely on instead of Jesus. They're the little false gods that we turn to, and and they, that they shape who we are and what we do. Often, um, all this is centered around control and security. We want to be in control. We want to feel secure. And frankly, in the pandemic, like, that's just kind of hit right at the heart of those things. I want want you to notice how Jesus keeps putting the disciples in situations that are way beyond their control and seem to threaten their security. It's not because Jesus wants to make them miserable. What he's doing is he's exposing the lies in the depths of their hearts that they probably aren't even aware of, those things that we tell ourselves. Their idea of who Jesus is just isn't big enough. And Jesus wants to expand that. Did you ever notice um, that uh, Jesus does something in our passage? Did you notice that Jesus does something that God actually didn't do in his encounter with Moses? Jesus turns to his disciples, right? He doesn't keep passing them by. He stops. He looks into their eyes. He says, "Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." That phrase, "It is I." It's actually the divine name for God that God had told Moses: "I am." It's also an allusion to the prophet Isaiah, where in Isaiah 43:11 it says, "I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me." There is no Savior. Jesus is God turning to us so that we can see God face to face. Here at Emmanuel, we say, say a lot, that we exist to see, describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. And here we see Jesus, who is God, who has the power over the wind and the waves, who feeds his people in the desolate places. He comes to us in our brokenness. He comes to us in our false understandings of who he is. He comes to us in our misguided zeal to hold on to control and comfort. And he gets into the boat and the winds grow calm. There's another thing that Jesus does that deviates from the Exodus story. Pharaoh, in his hardness of heart, is ultimately hardened by God into a place of judgment and destruction. Pharaoh loses his firstborn son. He loses his army. He loses um, his his slaves who he had building up his his empire. Pharaoh loses everything. But Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he walks with them and he softens their hearts. We don't have time to get into all of it, but there's actually a third boat ride in Mark. It's it's over in Mark chapter 8. It's after Jesus, again, feeds people. He feeds 4,000 people, and then they take another little boat trip. The disciples there, they're still wrestling with their hardness of heart, um, but but, but they're making some progress. And and eventually it gives way to Peter confessing Jesus is Christ, and Jesus revealing to them that he's going to get killed, and he's going going to rise from the grave. And so Jesus walks with the disciples through their misunderstandings and through their confusion and through their mistakes. And it ultimately leads him to his death on the cross. God takes on death and he breaks the power of death. And everywhere that the disciples failed, Jesus succeeds. He brings healing to the world. And this ultimately frees the disciples and all of us who follow Jesus to live differently. So going back to the question um, that I, I started this with, where I was, was thinking about like, what does a new normal look like? What does a new normal start with for us who belong to Jesus? Or, or even for those of us who want to follow Jesus. What presuppositions do we need to empty ourselves of if we're to be a community that speaks life and justice and restoration and healing to a world around us, a world that's broken? It starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus as God. Jesus who calms the wind. Jesus who feeds people in the wilderness. Jesus who turns to us so that we can see the face of God. Jesus who walks with us through all our missteps and our misunderstandings. Jesus is God with us. Do you really believe that? Let that sink into you. Let's see what God does with us. And as we're gathering together, as we're learning what it's like to be a community that follows Jesus together, We need to keep at the center that Jesus is God. He's sufficient to hold us. He's sufficient to heal us. He's sufficient to to guide us through all the tough things that we need to do. And as we do that, we're going to reflect the beauty of Jesus to the world around us. Amen. Amen.